In today's podcast, I want to look at what may seem at first to be a, a diversity of, of different issues. Um, I mean, I want to talk about the efforts to pass laws that uh, for, of gun control laws, and also to talk about the upcoming ruling about Roe versus Wade, and also the 1619 project. And I hope to be able to conclude by kind of bringing these things together and making sense of them, and particularly in light of our form of government. Because essentially these topics all are applicable to the idea that there are some who want to effectively change our current system of government. They would like us to move away from being a Republican form of government to uh, not even a democratic government, but actually to a totalitarian form of government. And I want to explain how that process could work. But first of all, I'd like to begin with a, a scripture that you may be well familiar with. I've quoted it several times, but it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, we all understand how important a foundation is to a building. In other words, a foundation not only controls how big a building can be and how tall it can go, but it also will really determine how long the building will last. A, a solid, firm foundation can will last forever and ever, and that will keep the integrity of the house or building in good shape. But if you build a faulty foundation or if you tear out the foundation, then we know that the entire building will collapse eventually. And so when you look at whether you're talking about a person's individual faith, the question is always, what is your faith built upon? Uh, for example, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that there's only one foundation that you can build upon that will give you not only uh, the maximum life experience you'll have in this world, but also will guarantee that you will experience eternal life, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. So Paul very clearly said that when they were building churches, we had to begin by laying that spiritual foundation of, of Christ first and foremost. And we find that that's why Satan often attacks uh, our faith in Christ, our faith in his word, because if he can get us to question and doubt those things, then our faith and the house of faith that we live in can begin to crumble and collapse very, very quickly. At the very least, if he doesn't completely wipe out our faith, he takes away our confidence so that we're not so bold and uh, affirming. Uh, in other words, we have a tendency to go silent about our faith when we're not quite sure what we believe or what we know to be true. And so all of this is part of the demonic, diabolical plan of Satan to really not only destroy the individual Christian, but also to weaken the church as a whole, and really ultimately to get us into a place where we are silent about the evil that is rising all around us. And it's my personal opinion that to be silent in the face of evil is a kind of evil all unto itself. And so it's really important that we be clear in our thinking about a lot of the critical issues that are facing the church today and are threatening actually the very existence or identity of the church as the body of Christ within our culture. But um, what we're seeing now in, in many clear ways coming from the current regime that's uh, occupying Capitol Hill and the White House is a effort to really 
changed the entire way that we are governed. And this has been going on for a long time. There's been a movement away from the constitutional republic that the country was founded in to the idea that we are actually a constitutional democracy. And and there's a significant difference in those two, and I'll explain that later on. And finally, that becomes the next step into totalitarianism. Because most people don't realize that the basis of many totalitarian regimes, particularly in the modern world, hasn't been a constitutional republic, but it's been rather pure democracy. Because a pure democracy has a vote of the people, which ultimately can lead to the establishment of a single ruler or a single group of rulers who control the entire nation. And that's what we see around the world today, especially in places like Russia and other countries where they have a democratic system that somehow ends up uh, supporting the rule of one strong leader. And that's essentially where our leaders today are trying to take us because they're trying to ensure that their elite status will be as the oligarchy that rules over our country is ensured and they continue to be in power. So what's really under assault today uh, is not just gun control or or the Second Amendment. It's not just Roe versus Wade, abortion and so forth. And, And it's not just even our history. All of those things together are being assaulted, really trying to tear the foundation of the nation apart one brick at a time. Uh, for example, when you talk about gun control, really the truth of the matter is it's not just about guns, that uh, making guns illegal has been demonstrated repeatedly to not make people any safer. I mean, the first gun control law we had in this country was in 1934. So when Joe Biden says that after the Second Amendment was ratified that you couldn't buy a cannon. Um, in fact, he is completely wrong. You you could. You could buy a cannon all the way up until 1934. And there were many people who owned cannons before 1934. So as is so often the case, he asserts things that either he doesn't know, he's been misinformed, or he intentionally knows is not true, which I kind of think is the least likely option because I'm not quite honestly, and I don't say this derisively, He's just not playing with a full bag of marbles. But one of the things we know is in 1934, they passed a law against automatic weapons. And that was because many uh, people coming back from World War I were familiar with how to use a submachine gun. You could buy a submachine gun, and that's what many of the gangsters saw as their gun of preference. And so they outlawed guns that could rapid fire in that way. Um, <clears throat> it is only recently that we find that the idea of taking your personal arms away from you has been on the agenda. And it has, a, I think, a very uh, fundamental basis that it is impossible for us to resist tyranny if it should rise to such a level if we are a disarmed constituent. And that's really been not just a national agenda, it's an international agenda by the oligarchical elites. I mean, that's why one of the first things that Mao Zedong did in China was to outlaw the private ownership of weapons. He knew that people couldn't organize against him in a violent way if they didn't have weapons to fight back of at least equal power and force. And we're seeing that really being carried out all over the world. And the same thing is true in countries like Russia and so forth. So it's interesting that not allowing people to have guns, have weapons, um, is something that has been a real concern of dictatorial governments um, since the very beginning. Um, 
it's interesting because when the uh, in 1934, when uh, submachine guns and automatic weapons were outlawed, uh, there was a higher percentage of Americans who owned guns than people do today. Now, removing guns uh, is going to be very, very difficult because um, there are over 300 million guns in the United States right now. I mean, there's you know more than enough for almost every single person, every adult certainly. So it would be a hard task to get rid of them, and so they're going to seek to uh, remove it incrementally, a little bit at a time. Now, there are some of you I know you're saying you're, you're reading the newspaper and seeing all these uh, examples of mass shooting. What's interesting is there throughout American history, especially modern history, there have been numerous cases of mass shootings. But what we find with our media is that for the most part, they tend to be agenda-driven. So remember, I can remember so clearly, whenever there was a plane crash, suddenly they would report on every single plane crash that they could find. And so it gave you the sense that air travel is incre- incredibly dangerous, when in fact, it's very, very safe. It was much, It's much more safe than driving to work every day in your car. But the whole point is, is they when they want to push the agenda that guns in are inherently evil and you shouldn't have one, they're going to start featuring every story they can find where there is a shooting that takes place. And here's what's really interesting. If you dig into most of the shootings, you will find that they are gang-related, or there are shootings within family members who uh, kill one another for various reasons. There are very, very few, very rare cases of where somebody uh, will go into a setting where they'll shoot a bunch of people like they did in the school in Uvalde. And I'm not saying that's not terrible, but I don't think the failure was simply the fact that this guy was be able to purchase and own a gun. Uh, in fact, the, the failures apply to a lot of things. That more, more ostensibly, it applies to the idea that we have a massive breakdown in society that uh, particularly due to faithlessness and fatherlessness in the homes, we know that almost all these shooters are people who have no father figure in their life. They usually are left to themselves a great deal of time. They spend a lot of time on the internet and not being socially integrated. Most of them, if not all of them, suffer from serious depression. And most interestingly is that Almost all of them have been on antidepressant drugs of one kind or another, which, by the way, research has shown that over time, it often leads to uh, various suicidal or homicidal iterations. So there's so many factors involved with this, and I think that's really illustrated by what took place a few years ago in London, England. Uh, London and England has one of the strictest anti-gun laws in the world. I mean, you you can't you know buy a gun in in London, I mean, basically, unless you can prove that you are going to use it for hunting purposes only, and even that you're restricted in what kinds of guns you can buy. And yet we find that a few years ago, before COVID hit, London had a higher murder rate than New York City. Because in, New York, in London, what people were doing is using knives, machetes, and hatchets, and other sharp-bladed items to attack and kill one another. And so the idea that you take away people's guns, you're going to also have to take eventually their kitchen knives as well, because a lot of murders take place. In fact, more murders take place through those kind of weapons and implements that have ever been used to kill people by guns. So, you know, it's one of these things where you don't really 
take the time to look at the data because you have another agenda that's in play. And one of the things I try to underscore in these presentations, these podcasts, is that we need to really step back and look at these things, not only from a more uh, logical and uh, factual basis, but also from a biblical basis. And in the end, of the, the end of the day, what it really comes down to is that the murderous actions of people are based upon uh, their sin nature. And when you have a culture that says there is no sin, when a culture says that your personal happiness and enjoyment and fulfillment are absolutely essential and you should be able to do, be, who, whatever you want to be, you end up with a place where people are living without law. And the Bible calls that lawlessness, antinomianism, the idea that they don't, there's no restriction that applies to me. And when you remove restrictions, you find that bad things happen. I mean, every one of us who is a parent knows that if we hadn't put certain boundaries around our children, they would have turned into being murderous little heathens. But it's the idea of being confined, your behavior is controlled, and that ultimately the, the goal of, of God is that we would come into a personal relationship with Christ where the thing was, which was the governor of our actions, our thoughts, our words, and so forth, is the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell us when we are born again by Jesus Christ. But I think the second item that is really uh, key to all of this, I think when we talk about abortion and the ruling that's coming up soon with the Supreme Court, the Roe versus Wade debate and the controversy is not simply about abortion, but it's really about uh, not only a moral issue, about when life begins. I mean, scientifically, we know through uh, neonatal science that life begins at, at the moment of conception. And so from a scientific point of view, that's not really the argument. But what's really, I think, essential in this whole thing is that what is being argued is that the federal government has the right to force states to keep laws that their own citizens don't support. And what we've seen is a growth of what's called federalism over the last hundred years. It really began with the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt, um, whatever his motives were, but basically to help people survive because the economy had collapsed so badly that uh, he created all sorts of government programs to feed and provide jobs and for the first time, the federal government began to insert itself into various state activities. Uh, increasingly over the years, the government, the federal government has had taken ownership and control of large swaths of property so that even in our current oil crisis, which is really a manufactured crisis because it's the government who's restricting the oil companies from being able to extract the oil and also to refine it. We haven't built a new oil refinery since 1970. And uh, basically, it's part of the Biden's Green New Deal, which I'm sure that he and most of his, his administration don't really understand. But the whole point is, is it really comes down to the idea, does the federal government have the right to dictate what takes place, not only on a state level, but ultimately in your home and, and in your personal life? And so this becomes another issue where we're talking about the relationship of the federal government and its rulings to the life of the average individual and also the Constitution. And the third thing I want to look at really quickly is the 1619 Project, which was uh, published by the New York Times a few years back. Um, it was written by this lady, Hannah Jones, who um, 
basically, you know, her contention is that uh, racism is not just systemat- systemic within our culture, but it's the very foundations upon which our history, uh, our, our nation was founded. And uh, what they essentially doing is creating really bad history because it's an effort to use ideological ideology, uh, basically a, a uh, critical race theory ideology to rewrite history and then to put that into the schools. Again, as bad as the uh, 1619 project is in terms of history, it's even worse because it because of what it seeks to do, and that is to supplant our constitutional republic with a different form of government. Uh, regarding the 1619 project, let me say just a few things for those of you who are not familiar with it. In the book, what she did is basically said the American Revolution was fought uh, to defend slavery. In fact, the whole idea of 1619, uh, the first settlers coming from England to to the United States, um, did so because they wanted to protect their rights of uh, slavery, which is kind of bogus because what they did was they were looking for religious freedom, which is kind of the uh, direct opposite. But uh, the thing that, that she overlooks from a historical and factual point of view is that uh, Britain ha- didn't outlaw slavery until second uh, several decades after the revolution. And so you have to understand that, uh, that in fact, what the uh, revolution did was it gave independence to the states from Britain, and therefore individual states could begin the process of outlawing uh, slavery within their own borders. And that's exactly what happened. So that ultimately when you come to the Civil War, what you have is a standoff between northern and southern states, the southern states whose economy was very dependent upon uh, slave labor because of the cotton industry and the value of cotton at that point in time. The northern industries were much more mechanized into things like steel and iron and things of that nature, didn't really benefit from slave labor. So you find that economics drove that difference to a large degree, but to come to the conclusion that the nation was founded in order to support slavery is just wrong on a historical, a sociological, and even an economic basis. It's just a, a faulty conclusion. And of course, this is the basis upon which uh, her entire book is is built. Uh, the idea that, in fact, she claims that uh, slavery drove the economic, economic growth of the country and led to the emergence of American capitalism. And this is interesting because now she begins to attack capitalism Capitalism. She herself is a Marxist, and she wants to attack capitalism, saying essentially that capitalism is synonymous with slavery. And, you know, although it served the needs of certain southern plantation owners, and it helped them to have an economic advantage, and it did in places like Jamaica, but the British and other places, the reality was that it not it was its relationship with capitalism is very, very uh, incidental. And so that her book is overtly ideological and overtly anti-capitalist in this sense. And that's why when you begin to dig into it and saying, well, who who are the uh, historical authorities who she relied upon? And it's interesting that most of what she wrote about about uh, the United States during that period, particularly uh, slavery and the economics involved, was uh, submitted by a guy named Matthew Desmond, who was a sociologist. He's not even really a historian, certainly not an economist. And uh, he wrote the main article for the project about the economics of slavery, 
And uh, he has no, no scholarly expertise in this area at all. So basically, historians have looked at it, and many have, and they've declared that uh, the book is, is deficient in relevant scholarship. So what is the 1619 Project? It is basically a a piece of ideological propaganda seeking to basically undermine the foundations of our nation, undermine not only constitutionally, but also to do away with um, the uh, idea of a of a uh, Republican form of government and its and the Constitution upon which it rests. So, let me talk a little bit about constitutional government, uh, representative government versus just a pure democracy. Uh, both systems, whether you're talking about republicanism or democracy, are based upon a representational system. In other words, you have citizens who vote to elect politicians. And so in that sense, they're both democratic. They're very similar. And so even though the United States was founded as a republic, people voted for its representative. But what makes a republic different from a democracy is that it has a constitution or a charter of rights that are written to protect the citizens from overreach by their government. In other words, they call them inalienable rights. Now, our founding fathers based this on the Bible. I mean, they themselves, some of them were, were ministers. I think half of the signers of the Constitution were ordained ministers. And they were a tremendously important influence, especially people like John Adams. And people often point at, at Washington, who we really don't have a lot of uh, firm detail about his faith, although he seems to have had a reverence for God and the Bible. We certainly look at uh, Jefferson, who himself was um, certainly not a Christian. He was more he was a deist, along with Benjamin Franklin and others. And yet at the same time, their deism seemed to be heavily dependent upon the Bible and its view of mankind and of the world. Our government was created with uh, three separate uh, uh, unit uh, bodies. We have the executive, the legislative, and the judicial, and each is supposed to be independent of one another. It's a check and balance system because our founding fathers knew that they couldn't trust the sin nature in people. There had to be some way of putting a block behind before somebody or some group of government or aspect of government that wanted to dominate uh, the national agenda and the direction of the nation. So they created that kind of system. I would say to a large degree that system has broken down. And we find, for example, that our president can make issues executive orders. In other words, these are laws that he makes and enforces without having to put them through Congress and without having them to be tested legally. In fact, many executive orders by the last few presidents have been brought before the courts and have been found to be illegal and have been wiped out. But by the time they're ruled illegal and gone through the court system, they've been in place for a very long time and have been able to accomplish whatever the president at that time wanted to accomplish. So one of the things we have to understand is that it's a drifting away from the Constitution that has really began to change the personality and the character of our present government. So that right now we're pouring tons of uh, military equipment and monies into the Ukraine in an under declared war against the Russians, but nobody, none of us have ever had a chance to really vote on that. And one of the things that's highly suspicious of it all is that those who are, who are promoting the war themselves are tightly connected to entities that profit from war. For example, our Secretary of Defense was on the board of Raytheon, who makes the Stinger missile. And you just you just look at it saying, well, you guys should recuse yourself, or like the Secretary of Energy, who uh, is 
is highly invested in electric car production. So um, you realize that the conflict of interest are supposed to preclude them. They're supposed to recuse themselves, but instead they just ignore the law. And by the time, first of all, in order for the law to be enforced, you have to have an executive or a judicial that will actually prosecute misbehavior. And in this current administration, there is none of that. So the thing that really makes our republic different is not the fact that we vote, we have a democratic voting system, but the fact that we have a constitution and we have what are called the founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, and all of those were premised on the idea that there are certain freedoms and rights that are inalienable. In other words, they're given by God. They're not given to us by any man. They're not given to us by any government. And that's why they, in the writing of these, uh, the Bill of Rights, they talked about the laws of nature and of nature's God, so that even the founding fathers didn't have a clear agreement on the nature of God. They understood that nature itself had certain laws and that nature had a God behind it. And what these laws did is they guaranteed that we were free and right to do certain things. In other words, by inalienable, the word means absolute, it's unchallengeable, it's unassailable, it's sacrosanct. There are things that are too important and valuable to be interfered with because they're given to us by God. They're not granted by governments. They are rights and freedoms. They're not privileges. They are freedoms for which we do not need to ask permission. And it's interesting that our founding fathers started off by saying the most important thing that we can do is guarantee the right of speech and religion. I mean, the First Amendment uh, uh, to the Constitution says, or the First Declaration of the Bill of Rights says that it's self-evident that governments are instituted to secure these rights, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And that when any ever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government that will respect those freedoms. And at the very top of these rights that cannot be legally abridged anyway is, quote, the establishment of religion or the prohibiting of free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble. When you think about it for a moment, that every one of those was actively violated over the last few years. First of all, the establishment of religion, that suddenly we find that the government begins to interject itself into religious practice. They prohibited the free exercise of our religion by telling us that during COVID that we were not allowed to meet. Now, our church initially submitted to that, except in the few first few weeks after the COVID lockdowns began, the riots broke out in Seattle, led by BLM and Antifa, and our governor declared that uh, when he was asked why he wasn't making those rioters um, wear masks, which is kind of funny because obviously um, <laughs> he had no control over them. And in fact, he did so little, we know he had no interest in doing anything with regards to them. But he said that was their First Amendment right. 
And I remember when I heard that, I simply, we reopened our church and I told my congregation that we are not holding church services, we're holding a demonstration a, against the powers of darkness, and therefore it's our First Amendment right to do so. And that's what the First Amendment really clearly says, that you can't abridge the freedom of speech. In other words, you can't control what people say or of the press. And here again, what have we begun to experience? As the media becomes co-opted by all these large technical tech firms, we find that in the end, what they do is they just cancel or silence anybody that they don't want saying what they want said. There's a, a real effort to shut down every single entity that speaks contrary to the ways of the current regime. And so again, it also says it can't prohibit the right of the people to peaceably assemble. Uh, so the idea of closing churches and telling people how they can worship, that they have to social distance, they have to mask, they have to do all these things. You know, I told people who objected to us just simply reopening our church is if you're uncomfortable, don't come. To Whether you come to church or not to come is your choice. And if that doesn't offend you too much, me saying that, then you can follow online. But the simple fact is that this is a right guaranteed by the government, and it has no right to tell us when, how, where we worship. Uh, and it's interesting because that's the First Amendment. What is the Second Amendment? The second thing that the Founding Fathers thought was so important to establish was the right to keep and bear arms. And, you know, some people interpret it's the right to form a military. Well, it says that the states are allowed to form their own militia, but it also says secondarily, and to keep and the right to bear arms, talking about individual citizens having that right. So these are foundational. And so when you begin to see uh, people arguing for beginning to moderate or even completely eliminate the Second Amendment as if that was going to save lives, um, you realize that what's really behind that argument, and I'm not saying the people who are arguing it always are smart enough or informed enough to understand what they're doing, but what they're really doing is saying, we need to start changing the Constitution. And the things that they want to change is, first of all, that you can't have a weapon for self protection. And they also want to limit where you can go and who you can go with and how what you do when you go and be with other people. I mean, they want to silence your speech, spot, silence your religious worship. And the reason that they want to stop worship is the same re reason that China right now has a full onslaught persecution about, against religious people of any form. In other words, whether you're talking about Christian churches, which are being intensely persecuted and many pastors are being arrested and imprisoned, or you're talking about the Uyghurs, the Muslims, in, in, uh, who are being arrested and uh, put into concentration camps and who are having their put into slave labor camps and they're having their organs harvested and all the rest. Women are being sterilized and so forth so that the Muslims can't reproduce. But also groups like Fulongong, which are not well known, but again, they're a religious movement because what they protest, and, and let me add to that, even the Buddhists up in Mongolia who are have been basically squelched. The reason the Dalai Lama doesn't live in China or Mongolia anymore is because he was driven out. They don't want religion because they want communism to be the religion. And what we have today is a system where uh, the government wants to be the ultimate arbiter of your life. And basically, they will de declare to you what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do.
You know, it was writer and philosopher Ayn Rand who described what's happening in America today as being the ultimate inversion. And she wrote, she says, when the government is free to do anything it pleases, while our citizens may act only by permission, this sets the stage of rule by brute force. And what we see happening right now is rule by brute force in places like China or in Russia and in many other places around the world that we see that totalitarian governments are increasing across the world. And democracy is not breaking out all over the world because powerful interests economically and also politically uh, do not want independent peoples. They don't want a democratic and especially Republican type of democracy, which has a constitution that guarantees the government can't transgress certain rights. They don't want that because they want the right to be able to do whatever it is they deem right and important. So that when we talk about these rights in the constitution, there's one other term we need to think about, and that's the word that these are inherent. And what that means is they cannot justifiably be taken away. So if a government takes away certain inherent rights, like the freedom of religion, uh, that's declared by our court system as being an injustice. And, and recently, we've, the courts have been very favorable to religious groups, and it's one of the reasons that there's talk about ending or packing the Supreme Court. Now, if you haven't listened to that, there are people who say, we'll just nominate and put into in, create justices until we have such a large number of them who see it our way that that we can always live. Our progressive agenda will always succeed and nobody will be able to stop us anymore. And it's this kind of belief that the world needs to be changed and therefore to change it, we need to destroy the current structure. And they will use the administration, the, the, the executive body, they will use a legislative body. But what they really like to use is the, the judicial system because then they can shut down uh, every kind of effort to uh, maintain the republic as we know it today. And in saying that it's it's an injustice, certainly does not mean that an oppressor or a tyrant is unable to steal or suppress those rights. But to do so is currently criminal and it's egregious. But it's also, I think, important to know it's a sin that provokes the judgment of God on both men and nations. Now, if you were to ask me, well, what do I think is going to happen in America over the next 10 years? I don't know. You know, obviously, I can't forecast with any kind of certainty or accuracy. But what I can tell you is that um, the tensions that are growing in our country uh, are the kind of tensions that most historians say lead to great upheaval. Um, there are uh, lines being drawn in the sand all over the place, and the sides are becoming more polarized, and there's less and less con conversation. There is very little compromise. And what we're finding is that many people on the extremes are doubling down, and it doesn't take a lot to create a, a civil war, to create great unrest, and particularly when people feel oppressed and pushed down. I think it's a time for us as Christians to realize that if our country were to go into a violent and or revolutionary swing, it really would probably be in no one's best interest. As we learned from the Civil War, where millions uh, were uh, destroyed, basically became casualties of the war, and even today we're still dealing with the after effects of that war, um, we, we understand that 
war is 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 really not a, a profitable thing. In fact, uh, long ago it was said that uh, when when a war begins, the first casualty is the truth. And so we find governments have a vested interest in convincing you that they are doing the right thing so that you will continue to support them with your blood and treasure. And yet oftentimes, as we've even found our own country, that those wars were not in our best interest. They were in the interest of a certain limited class class of highly powerful people who benefited from them. And so what we need to do is realize that There needs to be a change, but not the kind of change that comes through violence or upheaval. We need to have a spiritual change. We need to have an awakening in our culture that basically the church needs to begin to recognize that it is the Constitution that guarantees our right to freely worship God and that we need to protect that. We need to speak up when we think it's threatened. We need to vote in ways that will influence in that. But most importantly, that we would pray, that we would pray. You see, there's a, there's a twisted concept that I find many Christians have that Christians that we're supposed to just sit back quietly and not do anything, that we shouldn't really uh, uh, express our v- views in any kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a verbal or aggressive way. And yet I would just simply point out that that's not what I find uh, in the in the scriptures. Um, we find, for example, the ancient prophets rebuked the kings of Israel and Judah when they were behaving badly, and, and often they suffered for it. We know that the prophet Isaiah was sawn in half by King Manasseh because he just wouldn't shut up about his sins. John the Baptist was publicly and loudly and repeatedly uh, rebuking Herod Antipas, calling him an adulterer because he was, and he was basically saying, you claim to be a Jewish king, but you're committing this sin. And of course, he lost his head for speaking out. Jesus publicly rebuked the Jewish leaders of his day when he was calling out the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He calling them snakes and vipers and hypocrites and whited sepulchers. You have to understand that these men were the Sanhedrin council. They were the ruling council. They were the ones who ran the government. Jesus was rebuking the leaders of his nation. And when he cleansed the temple, he was going against the very temple priests who were the ones who were benefiting from those marketplace that they had created in the temple. And that probably had more to do with why they killed him than anything else. He was cutting off their income. And so when we give this idea that Jesus just quietly went as a lamb to the slaughter, yeah, he did when his hour came, when he knew that his job was to be offered up as a sacrifice. But before that, he spoke out very openly and rebuked the Jewish leaders uh, over and over again. Even the apostles, when they are brought up before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jews, they're commanded by these rulers who have absolute authority to no longer preach or meet publicly and, and, and no longer talk about Jesus. And they said, you judge whether we should obey God rather than man. That's what you have to do. But we're going to continue preaching. We're going to continue meeting. We're going to continue doing what we're doing. And even the apostle Paul refused to stop preaching despite being arrested, beaten, imprisoned. You see, by, by Roman law and by Roman standards, remember one of the accusations that was brought against Paul, that they're teaching us to worship gods that are not lawful? Christianity was not a legal religion in Rome. Judaism was, but Christianity was not. And so eventually we find that the execution of Paul and Peter by Nero was in keeping with the fact that they were promoting a religious system that was violating Roman law. 
So this idea that Christians should simply just, you know, close up our mouths and be quiet and be a good witness by not doing things or saying anything is, I think, really a, 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 an imbalanced way of looking at the Word of God. For example, at the beginning of COVID, many leading evangelical leaders uh, counseled Christians to submit to the lockdowns and to the vaccines and the rest of it to wear masks and social distance, blah, 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 because that was a way of loving our neighbors or honoring the king and being a good witness for Christ. And yet we know now that all of that was fabricated. The lockdowns were not effective. The science, they knew that before they even did it. The vaccines are increasingly proving not to be helpful. In fact, I just read a report the other day that uh, if you have had the vaccine, especially if you had two vaccines, you are 50% more likely to contract COVID now than people who have never been vaccinated. And that was found to be true in, in a study that was done in Israel, who are kind of the leaders in the research on COVID, uh, as well as a couple of other countries. So it's it's really important for us to understand that um, we were lied to and we continue to be lied to. And many of these uh, Christian leaders, evangelical leaders, to this day have never apologized, never acknowledged, never said we made a mistake. They sat by passively and encouraged allowing the government to close our churches and to command us on how we could worship. I don't know how where was where you were, but we were told in our state that you couldn't even sing. If you were social distancing, wearing a mask, uh, one told, guy told me his church required him to sign a hold harmless agreement in case he came down with COVID. I mean, all of these things they submitted to, and then they said, well, you can't sing because that might cause the virus to spread. So right away, they're admitting that the mask that you're wearing isn't going to do anything, but we don't want you to wear it. Because what it did is it isolates people, it breaks down social cohesion, and begins to segment society so that it's easier to control. That's not just my opinion, but I think it's the opinion of many people who have studied these things from a, from a scientific point of view. So anyway, that's um, a lot of stuff. I hope it wasn't too fast and furious, but... Um, I would encourage you to really read through the, the Bill of Rights, read the, the, uh, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, read the founding documents, familiarize yourself with them, and understand that this is the protective layer that guards our freedoms as citizens, and many people simply have never read them. Now, I say that because I just read a statistic the other day that was very, very troubling to me. And it said 44% it said of adult males in America today have a, a, a reading proficiency that's so low that they can't even read a children's book to their children at bedtime. Part of that is contributed is, is because not only have our schools failed to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, but we find also that um, people have become so addicted to screens that they are losing the ability to read um, comprehensively. And by comprehensive, I mean to read something and really understand what you're reading and be able to communicate that. So that contributes as well. So become a reader. I know people who, before they got saved, were very poor readers. And what they did is they began reading the Bible. And it was hard from the beginning. They worked at it and they kept at it. And over time, their skill at reading improved dramatically. And so if, if this is you and you're feeling kind of put down and cast down by all this, I would just encourage you to say, 
You can change it. It doesn't matter what age you're at. In fact, the older you are, when you start to learn a new skill, the more uh, uh, the more your mind becomes refreshed. You see, people get older and their the brain cells begin to deteriorate, the synapses begin to harden up, and they don't they have trouble transferring information. And yet, your brain has over a trillion connectors. That if you learn something new, even at 80 years of age. You can create a new connection that helps you to keep your mind fresh and alert. Learning new things is a way of keeping your brain healthy. So that they found people under biopsies who had advanced Alzheimer's disease whom nobody ever recognized simply because they were constant lifelong learners. So if you're not very proficient in reading, the way you become proficient is by spending a lot of time reading. And you may want to have a dictionary beside you so that you can look up the words that you don't understand. And I know that's maybe embarrassing and it's arduous, but think about it this way. It's also not only good for your spiritual health, it's not only good for the nation's health, it's good for your mental health. (laughs) That's my health advice for this month. Well, anyway, thank you for following along and uh, look forward to the next time we can chat. God bless you and go in his grace.